Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 373 with Weldon Long. Weldon has an inspirational story, some good old-fashioned transformation of his mind and his results being very down and out to being very successful, along with some very helpful, actionable, sensible takeaways that we can all apply. So I think you'll dig it and you'll learn one, how Weldon went from being a dropout and convict to a star salesperson, two, a five-step process to getting what you want from others, and three, how to achieve more consistent results from yourself using the FEAR, F-E-A-R, framework. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep373. Now here's Weldon's story. Weldon Long is a high school dropout who spent 13 years in prison for robbery, money laundering, and mail fraud. While in prison, Weldon started studying. And there he earned his GED and then a bachelor's in law and an MBA in management. At 39 years old, Weldon was released. While living in a homeless shelter next, Weldon then landed a commission-only sales position and quickly became the company's top sales leader. In 2004, he opened his own heating and cooling business and grew it into a multi-million dollar enterprise. He now trains the sales teams at major Fortune 500 corporations, including FedEx, Farmers, and Home Depot. So thanks to Weldon for sharing some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Weldon. Weldon, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, Pete, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Oh, me too. And I think you've got a fascinating story. You say that sales saved your life. Can you walk us through how that worked? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it may sound a little overdramatic, but it actually is true in my case. Uh, from, uh, from 1987 until 2003, over those roughly 16 years, I spent uh, 13 years in prison, in federal and state prison. I was a ninth grade high school dropout. I was uh, kind of a punk and a thug running the streets, uh, using drugs and not being a very responsible person, obviously, a very dysfunctional life. And at 23 years old, I ended up going to prison, uh, was out trying to pawn a shotgun for some rent money and uh, couldn't pawn the shotgun, ended up getting high with a guy that I picked up hitchhiking and uh, we had a loaded gun in the truck. What could possibly go wrong with that scenario? And uh, within a couple of hours, he and I used that gun to hold two innocent men at gunpoint. Next thing I knew, I was in prison for 10 years. Uh, I did about four and a half years. I paroled. I got out. I was still a ninth grade high school dropout. Now I was also a convicted felon. So didn't have many opportunities. Ended up, ended up going back to prison again on some parole violations Got out again at 30 years old. Now I'm a two-time convicted felon, still a ninth grade high school dropout. Ended up taking a job doing some telemarketing. And uh, one day the FBI showed up and we all went to federal prison on mail fraud and money laundering convictions. Oh, bummer. Yeah, I know. Oh, man, you're trying to be legit and turns out the company <laughs> is, well, did you know they were fraudsters? <laughs> hey, listen, I should have been suspicious when they hired me, right? Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's so anyway, then I went to the federal penitentiary for seven years, but it was during those seven years that I kind of had my moment of clarity and kind of set me on the path that I've been on for the last 22 some odd years. Well, let's hear about the moment of clarity, shall we? What happened yeah. exactly? <laughs> well, it was June 10th of 1996. I had already served about six years in state prison. I was just starting seven years in federal prison. And on June 10th of 1996, one of the cops walked into the cell house and handed me a note to call home. And I called home and learned that my father had uh, unexpectedly and suddenly passed away at just 59 years old. And 
when I realized that my dad went to his grave knowing me as a thief and a crook and a liar, it completely devastated me. Just the reality of my life was right there in front of me. I was 32 years old. I had destroyed my entire life. And uh, I started thinking about a conversation that my dad and I had a couple of weeks before he passed away. We were on the phone and I was kind of complaining about my life. And my dad said to me, he said, you know, son, uh, your life could be worse. Hmm. And I said, dad, how in the world could my life be worse? I'm a ninth grade high school dropout. I've never had a job, uh, never had a home as an adult. Um, Three-time convicted felon, not getting out this time till I'm 40 years old. I had a three-year-old son that I had fathered while I was out on parole. I had abandoned him. And uh, I said, dad, how could my life be any worse? And he said, son, you're still breathing. And as long as you're breathing, you've got a shot to change your life. Mm. And uh, with that, we exchanged our I love yous, hung up the phone. I never spoke to my father again. That was the last thing he ever said to me. Two weeks later, he was gone. And um, after he passed away, I made the decision. I was going to change the course of my life and become a, a man that my father could have been proud of and the father that my little son deserved. And that's exactly what I did. That's awesome. Well, congratulations and kudos. And thank you for thank you. contributing to humanity in this way. and taking charge and overcoming those challenges to do an about face. That must be super challenging. It wasn't easy, but you know, it's, it's interesting that you said, you know, uh, kudos on the, on the contribution. And, uh, I think that's what it really comes down to. You know, we all have to work for our success, but the older I've gotten, I realize how important contribution is to the overall success in our lives. My first book is a little book called the upside of fear. And I was very, uh, pleased to receive endorsements both from Stephen, Dr. Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and also Tony Robbins, who's you know probably the greatest personal development you know person in the last 40 years. And when, uh, when Tony Robbins endorsed that book, his endorsement read, congratulations on your turnaround from prison to contribution. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you just used the exact same word because I think that's a huge part of it. Well, so then let's hear it. You're in prison. Yeah. You made a decision. And then what happened and how did the sales into the picture? Yeah, well, the initial kind of step was that, uh, you know, where do you turn this Titanic of a life around? I'm 32 years old. I'm a ninth grade high school dropout, a three-time convicted felon, wouldn't get out of prison for another seven years. And where do you start? I came up with the master plan to find out what really successful people do and start doing that, whatever it was. You know, not reinvent the wheel, not second guess it, just do it. So I started reading. The first book, ironically, I picked up was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But that led to many, many other books. And as I began to read these books, I remember reading a quote from Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, we attract that which we fear. And I thought, well, that's just kind of crazy. Why would I attract things in my life I don't want? So I kind of dismissed it. And a couple of months later, I'm flipping through uh, a Bible and I come across a scripture in Job. And Job says, Father, that which I have feared has come upon me. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, Nietzsche was an atheist. Job believed clearly in God separated by philosophy in thousands of years, but they were saying the exact same thing. And then I stumbled into uh, a little book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl, and Frankl said, fear may come true. And so I started thinking about this, you know, somehow maybe all the chaos in my life is because of what's in my brain. So I sat down at the little metal desk in my cell, and I wrote down everything I was most afraid of. And it turned out to be living and dying in prison, being broken, homeless, and impoverished my entire life, never being a father to my son. And that's what I had attracted into my life. My life was a perfect reflection of the things I feared the most. So I'm like, wow, these guys are right. You know, there's something to this. So I decided, uh, you know, initially I got to change what's in my brain. So I sat down at that same metal desk and I wrote out for me, Pete, what a perfect life would look like. I'm an awesome father to my son. I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I'm a successful writer and entrepreneur and blah, 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 all this amazing stuff. 
I took that sheet of paper. I put toothpaste on the back of it and I stuck it to the wall of my cell. <laughs> and there it sat for the next seven years. And every morning when I got up, I would read that list. I would meditate on it. I would visualize having that life, being that person. Now, I didn't know the neuroscience behind all this at the time. I was just a guy desperate you know, to do something. And I had read in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. He said, write these things down and imagine yourself already in possession of them. And that was just like so beautiful and romantic. Imagine yourself already in possession of them. Stephen Covey said, you can live out of your imagination rather than your past. So that's what I started doing. I would visualize that life. I did it for seven years. And uh, there's a lot of neurology behind it, but eventually it changed my thought process. It changed my habitual thoughts. Seven years later, I walked out of the penitentiary. Within five years, I had built a neat 5,000 company. I sold that and uh, started writing books and, and, and speaking and training and developing others in the, in the field of business and sales. And that's kind of how the sales thing kind of came to be. I got out of prison at 40 years old to a homeless shelter, couldn't find a job. Uh, you know, I was very motivated because I had that right mindset after seven years of telling myself I was going to be successful. But I still was a three-time convicted felon, <laughs> 40 years old with no work experience, but I got a little job as a salesman and I was really good at it. A year later, I opened my own company. I grew that uh, because I built a strong sales organization. I had learned so much about sales, primarily through books, you know, Tom Hopkins and Brian Tracy and, uh, you know, many of whom have become great friends over the years that, but at that time I was just a guy in a cell reading their books. And so the reason I say that sales changed my life is because it was the sales profession that took a guy like me, a ninth grade high school dropout, you know, a three-time convicted felon. It picked me up, it dusted me off, and it gave me a real shot at prosperity and wealth and having a, a productive life. And so I'm extremely grateful for the sales profession because as an independent sales professional, if you're good, you'll find a chance to make a living, right? You can build your own business, work for somebody else, whatever. But if you're good at it, you're going to make a living regardless of your background. Even a guy like me can have that kind of success in sales. That's so cool. And so now I understand that in your very first weeks of selling, you were doing awesomely. So what yeah. was going on there, you know, with regard to how you were approaching it differently or what did you do that was noteworthy, noteworthy, that's a word, distinct from that of other sales folks such that you were just crushing it from the get go? Well, I think initially, that's a great question, by the way. I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that specific question. But oh, thank you. It's a great question. And for me, initially, it was pure desperation, right? I'm living in a homeless shelter. I get this job at a small heating and air conditioning company. I've been knocking on doors for six months. I must have had a thousand people tell me no thanks once they found out about my record. But this one guy decided to give me a chance. I went out my first month. I sold $149,000 of air conditioners sitting at the kitchen table across from mom and pop homeowner. And I made over $13,000 in sales commissions. But what was driving my success at that point was just pure desperation and need. I had a 10-year-old son that was out there somewhere. He was three years old when I went to prison the last time. He was 10 when I got out. And I was driven by the singular focus to get a job, get a place to live, get my son, right? So I was driven by that. So I was good at it primarily because I learned very quickly that good, honest, hardworking people will look you dead in the eye and say, I'm going to call you next Tuesday, and then they won't call you next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I learned very quickly that your best chance of, of getting the sale is to have your prospect make a decision about you and your company and your products and your services with you sitting right in front of them, right? Because people don't really want to say no to your face. People like to say no in business and in sales 
they like to say no by saying, by ignoring an email or mm-hmm. not returning your phone call. And by the way, this is true. You and I were talking before the, the podcast that in the, in business, we're always selling something. Maybe we're selling an idea. We're selling our boss on promoting us or giving us a raise. And the key to those things is to get your boss, get your customer, get that person to make that decision about you with you sitting right in front of them. The probability you're going to get a yes is way higher because people just tend to say no by ignoring you. And uh, to quote a famous line from Fatal Attraction, I will not be ignored. And that's the key, man, making people reach a decision. You got to do your job. You got to build trust. You got to build, you know, uh, all the all the factors of sales and build relationships, investigate the problems. But at the end of the day, the real key is getting people to make a final decision about you and your company with you sitting right in front of them. Even if the answer is no, by the way. I tell people all the time, yes is best, but no is a perfectly acceptable answer in sales. Absolutely. The no's aren't going to kill you. And it frees you up. You know, exactly. Once you have a no, he's like, okay, I don't have to think about that anymore. Exactly. You know, I can focus my energies on more worthwhile opportunities. So Amen. that's cool. Well, so now I wonder, so that's sort of one very specific differentiator is that you prefer to be in person when someone is making the decision about you. And then that kind of automatically tips it in your favor. So then I guess I'm wondering in the context of, hey, selling your boss on giving you a promotion or a raise, there's some things that need to occur with regard to approvals and consideration and on and on. So how do you play that game? Do you say, okay, I'll meet back with you on this day and you can tell me your decision then. Is that how you do it or how's it work? As part of it, I mean, the, the, the key thing is, and in sales and in business, just influence and persuasion, you're exactly right. Sometimes there can be a process involved, right? You talk to your boss, he's got to talk to his boss. Um, but what, what I really mean is that before they are allowed to make a final decision, so in the situation you described, you would say, uh, okay, I understand you got to go talk to, to the VP of sales, but I'll tell you what, just, just, just promise me one thing. Before you make a final decision, you'll let me have one more conversation with you. And so you're getting them to, that, that you're going to be in front of them before they give you the final decision. The key then is, it's kind of a little five-step process. It works in sales. It works in influence. Oh, we like those. Let's do it. One, two, three, four, five. All right, we're in. One, two, three, four, five. The first thing is to anticipate the objection. You have to anticipate why they're going to say no, right? So let's say, for example, you go to your boss and you say, hey, I want to raise. I think I deserve a raise. And he says to you, okay, I got to talk to my boss. And he goes and talks to his boss. But you get that commitment. He's going to come back and talk to you one more time. So now you're at that final meeting and you anticipate that the objection is going to be the budget just won't permit it, right? So you go in with that in mind. And once you anticipate the objection or the obstacle, the key is then to get them to acknowledge that that particular objection should not be the thing that keeps you from getting what you want. Let me give an example. It'll make more sense. So if I know the budget's going to be an issue, I'm going to go back in and talk to my boss and say, now, boss, I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, to to explain whatever your final decision is. However, before you go there, I just, I just want to ask you a simple question. Would you agree or disagree that my performance has been great the last year? Well, of course I agree. Would you agree I've been on time with great sales productivity? Yes, I would agree. Would you likewise agree that those factors are every bit as important as what some arbitrary budget would be relevant to my pay raise, <laughs> Right. So what's he going to say? He just told you it was important and you're really good. Well, of course, there's other factors more important than just the budget, right? Mm-hmm. Then you got to make your case. That's the third step. So the first step is identify the objection. 
get them to acknowledge the objection should not prevent you from getting what you want. The third step is to make your case, right? That's where you sell yourself. Boss, I appreciate you saying that there's more factors more important than just the budget. I want to, here's my attendance record for the last year. I've been on time every single day. Here are my sales records, my productivity records. I have the highest closing rate in the division, highest average chick in the division. I make my case. I'm devoted to this company. I'm committed to this company. I, I make my case, right? The fourth step is to make a specific request. So boss, I appreciate you considering all this stuff. All I would ask at this point is a simple question. Will you permit me to have this raise that we both agree I deserve? And it's going to make it very difficult for him to say no because you're sitting right there in front of him. <laughs> Even if his boss told him no, it's going to put him in a situation. Hopefully the big boss gave the, the, the middle boss a little authority to make the decision. But you have to make a specific request for the thing that you want. One of the biggest people mistakes people make, both in sales and just business, is they fail to make specific requests. They'll kind of hint around towards something. They'll kind of say, hey, you know, I kind of like that raise and, you know, heck, I probably deserve it and, you know, or, or whatever. You got to go in and say, hey, I deserve this. You got to claim it. You know, what I'd like to do is to get your permission to go ahead and get this raise. I'll go tell accounting myself to change my pay structure, right? Make the specific request. And then the final, the fifth step, is if they deny you, you have to remind them of their previous declarations. This is based on a lot of work of a very smart man, uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini at Arizona State University. He's written several books on influence and persuasion. And there's a principle he refers to as the consistency principle, which is public declarations dictate future actions. Mm -hmm. What that means is that we tend to take actions consistent with our words. So if I ask my boss in step four, I ask to make the specific request, can I have the raise? If he says no to me, if he says, no, I can't, it's just not in the budget, I'm going to say, Mr. Boss, earlier you agreed that there were more factors related to my raise than just the budget. My productivity, my punctuality, all those things should be just important. Has that changed? Well, no, I don't know if it's changed, but it's just a budget thing. I understand. But we both agreed it's more than just the budget. I'd like to go ahead and, and ask you for that raise and to get this thing initiated. Now, there's no guarantee he's going to say yes, right? Life is about probabilities. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you through that little process, I got a much better chance of getting my raise than if I just said, hey, boss, I could really use some extra money, right? In kind of a passive aggressive or kind of a roundabout kind of way. It's about being direct, anticipate the objections, head off the objection, objections, make specific requests. It's true in sales. It's true in life. Right. Yeah. Well, as you lay that out there, I guess I'm thinking that the only, maybe not the only, but perhaps the highest probability gremlin that could gum up the works. You could call it the budget or just sort of like policy. It's like, you know, well, yeah. Weldon, you know, a fourth year program manager earns between X and Y dollars. Right. I know you're the most extraordinary program manager we've ever seen in our lives <laughs> or the history of this organization, but that's just not how the policies work. Right. And that's just kind of one of my pet peeves, I guess, is when... um you know, structural policies, rules, Trump, good, sensible thinking. And so it's like, well, yeah. I, I guess the policies mean that you're going to lose the best program manager you've ever seen as I go elsewhere and, and get <laughs> right. compensated appropriately, you know? Right. Yeah, I hate policies too. They sound a lot like police to me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't like it either. And you know, when you look at organizations, uh, they range, you know, kind of from uh, the bureaucracy on the far end of one scale, Right. Uh, the other end of the scale would be like a, a very creative learning organization, maybe like a uh, Microsoft or something like that. 
in the bureaucracy, let's just take a prison as an example, right? So the, the problem is that when you have a bureaucracy, the reason they have bureaucracies is because uh, the people attracted to those jobs, no disrespect to people that work in government agencies or things like that, but they tend not to be the most creative and have the best judgment. And so often what happens is that policies are made to replace judgment right. because they've decided we can't trust the judgment of the person at the driver's license bureau. So if you show up in the line and you got to go two windows down, you got to get at the back of the line. The fact that you are having a heart attack is not in the policy. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to hurry you through. The policy says you got to go to the back of the line at window number two because we don't trust the judgment. You go to a Microsoft where they trust the judgment and they have very few policies, right? Very few rules. So, you know, the policies are going to be more intense on the organizations that, that, you know, that are less creative and the leadership doesn't have the trust in the people to make decisions. But the other point you made is also interesting that you have a choice in your life. We can control the process of properly asking for a raise. We don't control the outcome, right? And that's about learning to to know that you can, you got to focus on what you can control in life. You can't focus on what you can control. It's a big lesson that I learned, believe me. But like you said, at the end, then you have the choice of saying, okay, I'm going to find a company that appreciates, you know, superior productivity. And then that's an individual choice. So there's no guarantee you're going to get the raise. Uh, the guarantee is you probably won't get it if you don't ask for it. Oh, right. If you do ask for it, you got a shot because the answer is always no until you ask. You know, that's really a good thought in terms of policies replacing judgment. And very well said succinctly. And I'm, it just gets me thinking about how, I don't know the right way to play this, but I guess if I were the manager who were handcuffed, you know, by a policy and then just sort of highlighting this notion, it's like, oh, it's a shame that, um, you know, this policy is deemed to be superior to your judgment. I don't know. You got tread lightly there. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But it just seems like, what if there's a magical turn of a phrase that could just, you know, stoke just a little bit of righteous anger. You're like, you know what? That is ridiculous. I don't care for that. <laughs> but you know what? Listen, people like yourself, right? Very creative, uh, very uh, uh, ambitious type people. You don't want that kind of kind of policy control. You know, Some people actually like that. Some people don't want the responsibility. Well, it's less ambiguous. It could be safe and calming. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I don't have to stress this. It's just kind of handled. Nah, right. Know? And if you wake up and do something in your business with your show, for example, you do something, it's your responsibility. Some people don't want the responsibility. So if I make the decision according to paragraph three, subsection 2A, I'm not responsible because that's what I have to do. Some people prefer not to have the responsibility of the consequences of a decision. So they abdicate their judgment, you know, in favor of, <laughs> the policy book, you know, the manual. Mm -hmm. Understood. Well, thank you for digging into that. So I also want to get your take on, you've got a book called Consistency Selling. Yeah. And I just want to get your take on consistency. You know, I'd say whether we're talking yeah. about sales professionals or any other group of folks, you know, why consistency? What difference does it make? And how do you develop it when you're just not in the mood? I don't feel like doing it. How do you do it anyway? Yeah, great question. So, and this was really the foundation of what changed my life was learning how to consistently uh, have more uh, creative, responsible, uh, powerful thoughts. And it really comes down to a very simple concept. Consistent results come from consistent activities. Random results come from random activities. That's true in business. That's true in sport. That's true in anything, right? If you just do something randomly, 
by definition, you can't repeat it. And therefore, if you had a good result, you probably won't get the good result again unless you do the same thing, right? You got to do the same thing to produce those results. So when I think about consistency, you really go back to my second book, which was a book called The Power of Consistency. And it's about how do you create a prosperity mindset, a mindset that is geared and programmed to repeat the things that work in your life and consistently produce the good results. And what I did is I developed a program around the acronym of FEAR, F-E-A-R. F is focus, E is emotional commitment, A is action, and R is responsibility. And through those four steps, it gives us the opportunity to kind of examine our habitual thoughts. What are the habitual things I'm thinking all the time? I tell people, you know, you get up in the morning and you start thinking, right? As soon as your eyes open, you start thinking, 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 thinking about your family, thinking about your job, thinking about your friends, thinking about whatever. But how often do we think about what we're going to think about before we think about it? And that to me is getting to the essence of our decision making. Where are those habitual decisions coming from? If I go, and have lunch, and I didn't think specifically about what I'm eating and whether or not I'm going to, you know, put nutrition or taste as the higher value, if I don't ever have that conscious decision, I just order something off the, the value meal, where did that thought come from, right? Because if I didn't think about what I think about, it came from somewhere. We have to examine where are those habitual thoughts coming that are driving our results in life. We're making a million decisions a day, what I call seemingly inconsequential decisions that determine our fate. For example, if I go home tonight and I have an argument with my wife, I have to make a decision about how I'm going to conduct myself. If I make the decision to yell and scream and intimidate, I'm going to define that relationship, right? If I go home and I, I make a better decision and I have some love and some patience and some understanding, I have a different kind of relationship. So my relationship is not some random thing that just happened. It's a product of my seemingly inconsequential decisions about how I react in that situation. I'll give another example. I get my paycheck, right? It's Friday night. I got the choice. I can go spend it all, have a hell of a weekend, or I can save 20%. Well, I reach in my brain, I pull out a decision. If I pull out the save 20%, I pull out a piece of my financial future. If I reach in there and pull out I blow all my money this weekend, I pull out a different financial future. So 20 years from now, my financial condition is not some random thing that lo and behold just happened to me. It's simply a reflection of millions of seemingly inconsequential choices that we have made over our life. Smoking is the perfect example. How long have we known smoking is unhealthy for us in this country? 100 years or so, maybe 80 years. Mm -hmm. A lot of people still smoke. A lot of good people. Smoking is not a moral thing right? A lot of good people, honest, hardworking people smoke cigarettes. But why would people smoke cigarettes knowing what we know about the health impacts? And the answer is very simple. Feels good, right? It's not a moral issue though. It just feels great. But moreover, smoking won't kill you today, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever impact smoking is going to have is 20 or 30, 40 years down the road. But imagine this scenario. Take the most avid smoker that you know, but instead of giving him one cigarette at a time, one seemingly inconsequential cigarette at a time, give him a year's worth of cigarettes at one time, right? 2,000, 3,000 cigarettes. Roll them up like a giant blunt and put some fire to it. Smoke them <laughs> if you got them, pal. Would he smoke 2,000 cigarettes at one time? <laughs> of course not. And if you ask him why, he'd probably say, well, because it make, it make me sick. It might kill me. Yeah, smoking 2,000 cigarettes will make you sick and it might kill you. But guess what? Smoking 2,000 cigarettes, one seemingly inconsequential cigarette at a time, will make you sick and might kill you too. It just takes long. Yeah. Right. So the key is we got to look at the tiny decisions that we're making habitually about 
our food choices, how we interact with the people we love, you know, picking up a cigarette, whatever. And it impacts every area of our life. Here's the rub on the whole thing. The fear process allows us to examine those habitual decisions, find out where they came from, ask ourselves, are they consistent with what I want today? And then change them if we want to change them through a simple neurological process. So I don't know how much detail you want to go into with the fear process, but it's actually very simple. In fact, part of the struggle is that it's so simple. It's so simple, people will be like, well, man, that can't work, right? Because it's so simple. In reality, it can move mountains. It's the single, the single most important factor that turned my life around from a ninth grade high school dropout, three-time convicted felon to a successful writer, entrepreneur, uh, and who's you know created a lot of uh, a lot of prosperity in my life. I didn't get any smarter. I didn't get any luckier. I damn sure didn't get any better looking. I changed my thoughts. I changed my habitual thoughts. That's what Emerson meant when he said we become what we think about all day long. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is intriguing. So you take a look and you go through these four steps. So then how do we get a transformation? So I guess I'm thinking about if, let's say I'm having a thought habitually that I don't care for, you know, what do I do with that? Perfect example. So here's what we do. The first step is focus. The step in focus is very simple. What do you really want? I encourage people to to identify two goals in the three main areas of their life. Their money, which is their career, their business, their financial future. Their relationships, which is your spouse, your kids, your community, your family, friends, whatever. And then your health, your mental, spiritual, and physical health. Those are the three primary areas of anyone's life. Your money, your relationships, and your health. What do you want in those areas? What one or two things do you want in each of those areas? Once you identify what you want, let's say you say, for example, I want to make $200,000 a year in sales. What two or three things must I do every single sales call every single day to get there? Not 10 things, not 100 things, because the confused mind says no. What one, two, or three things if I did every single day? So you find out what those are. In sales, it's running every call with passion and purpose, learn to diagnose problems and recommend solutions, and learn to ask for the order every single time. If you do those three things in sales and business, you're going to be successful. You can screw up everything else. But if you do those three, you're going to be successful. The next step is the emotional commitment step. I got to get deeply emotionally committed to the income and the things I have to do to generate that income. So you got to write it down in present current tense and then do what I call a daily quiet time ritual. 10 to 15 minutes a day reviewing the thing you want, the things you have to do. This turned out to be that little sheet of paper I had on my wall stuck there with toothpaste. I didn't realize the impact of what I was doing, but it was changing the neurology in my brain, right? I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've had neuroscientists call me. I had a guy call me one time and said, uh, he was a neuroscientist, a PhD, a clinical psychologist. He said, Mr. Long, this is the easiest explanation I've ever read in my life about the principles uh, that are the underpinnings of rationally motive behavior therapy and decision-making. And I'm like, there's a name for this? <laughs> it's like, it's common sense. I got to get focused on what I want, visualize it. It begins to change the brain. Uh, the third step, action. Uh, we leverage a very uh, big driver of human behavior, which is cognitive dissonance. If I tell myself I'm going to run every call with passion and purpose and ask for the order every single time. And then I go out on the sales call and I just drop off a bid. I don't do that. I'm going to feel dissonance. It's anxiety. The difference between what I said I would do and what I actually do. Well, that dissonance starts driving the behaviors we want, right? Because we don't want to be in a state of dissonance anxiety. We want to be in a state of, of you know, resonance, right? We want to be integrated with our thoughts and our actions. So if I tell myself every single day, I'm going to run a sales call a certain way, or if I tell myself every single day I'm going to eat healthy and then I find a cheeseburger in my mouth at lunch, I'm going to experience dissonance. The dissonance drives the behavior like, oh, that doesn't feel good. So I order the salad. 
And then the fourth step is responsibility. Everybody has problems in life. That's the bad news. The good news is our life is not a reflection of our problems. Our life is a reflection about our decisions about our problems. In other words, I had a bad set of problems 15 years ago. I got out of prison at 40 years old, well, you know, without any money, any clothes, any car, anything. Uh, but my life today is not a reflection of that situation. My life is a reflection of the decisions I made about that situation. And that's true for everybody. Everybody's life is a product of their decisions about their problems, not necessarily about the problems themselves. I'm not saying that we don't have problems that affect us long-term because if, you know, I just met uh, a fellow named Aaron Ralston. Oh, this is a guy you should get on your podcast, by the way. Do you know who Aaron Ralston is? Does that name ring a bell? A little bit. Tell me more. He's the guy that got trapped in the Utah desert and had to cut his arm off to get out. They made a movie about it called 127 Hours. Word. This dude is like the most awesome guy you're ever going to meet in your life, right? It was amazing. He was there six days before he finally did it. And his life today, you know, he's never going to have that part of his arm again, right? But his life today is not a reflection of that tragedy. His life today is a reflection of the decisions he made about how he's going to deal with that tragedy. If you ever get a chance to read his book or watch the movie 127 Hours, the book was called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. The movie was called 127 Hours. He's one of the most powerful human beings I've ever met in my life. Just just an amazing story. But he, he's an excellent example. My life is too on a, on a different type of way that you can overcome any adversity if you want it bad enough. Huh. Beautiful. Well, Weldon, tell me, anything else you want to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I just would uh, would encourage uh, uh, your listeners, if they want to get more information, we've got some free content available on the website at weldonlong.com, uh, or they can just text uh, the word videos to 96,000, and you get three videos in the mindset, sales, and business process. All the stuff that I've learned is free content. It's very powerful information. I think it's about 50 minutes worth of video content. And just want to make sure people know how to access some of that free content. Oh, cool. Thank you. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? Uh, you know, my favorite quote is a quote from Henry David Thoreau. And this quote was written on the wall of my cell. It's on my desk today. It's one that I use constantly. And it's very simple. If you advance confidently in the direction of your dreams and endeavor to live the life that you have imagined, you will meet with success unexpected in common hours. And what I love about that quote is, is that if you live the life, you know, you imagined, that means to me that you had to imagine it first. In other words, you saw it first. Dr. Covey used to say all things are created twice, once in our mind's eye and then in our physical reality. And I just think it's such a powerful, it's a beautiful quote. The words are beautiful, but it's like it's so poignant because you have to imagine that life first. And the last part of that, you will meet with success unexpected. That means that the success, the results will be even better than you anticipate. And that's what happened in my life. Listen, I knew when I got out of the joint the last time, I was doing some cool stuff with my life. I was getting my son. I was getting my act together. I was plowing ahead. But man, what's happened has been like a hundred times bigger than what I expected. That to me is one of my favorite quotes and it's just so beautiful. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Uh, I would say with respect to research, uh, would have to be on the theory of consistency uh, primarily is uh, researched and discussed by Robert Cialdini. Uh, there's some powerful research that he's done. A quick example, there was a company in Arizona that was raising money for childhood disabilities research. And they would send in canvassers to knock on doors and ask people to donate money. 
And Cialdini got involved and he kind of redesigned their process. And what he did is, by the way, they about 16% of people would contribute money to childhood disabilities research. You know, if somebody randomly picked, knocked on your door, 16% of people would, uh, would give some money. Uh, so Cialdini got the idea of having telemarketers call into those neighborhoods the, the week before the canvassers. Now, the telemarketers did not ask for any money. They would simply take a survey. But one of the survey questions was, do you think it's important to do childhood disabilities research? And of course, people say yes. The next week, they would send the canvassers to ask for money. Their rate of contribution doubled to 38%, right? Because people feel an obligation to take actions consistent with their words. It's powerful, powerful research. Uh, would recommend anybody who's interested in that uh, Robert Cialdini, he's written several books on persuasion and the power of influence. And he's just a, probably one of the smartest people I've ever read or had a chance to study. Oh, yeah. His books are fantastic. Influence, Science and Practice and Persuasion. And yep. I look forward to the day he joins us on the show. Man, he's a smart dude. Make sure I get an email on that one because I don't want to miss it. Oh, sure thing. <laughs> <laughs> and how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job? You know, I think the thing that helps me the most uh, is what I call my daily quiet time ritual. Uh, 10 to 15 minutes reviewing my key priorities, whether it's my family goals, my financial goals, my health goals. Life can be pretty hectic. I travel 150,000 miles a year. And I literally, this week, for example, I'm in my third city this week speaking. And, you know, sometimes I wake up and I literally for five or 10 seconds got to remember what hotel, what city, what I'm doing there, you know. And uh, life can be very hectic for everybody, you know, families and bills and jobs. And man, that quiet time ritual, 10 to 15 minutes a day reviewing your key priorities in life. In other words, 10 to 15 minutes thinking about what you're going to think about before you think about it. It's the one thing that keeps me grounded. I'm pretty high strung, but that's the one thing that keeps me grounded and uh, it keeps me sane. There's nothing nothing more important in my life than reviewing my my key priorities every single morning for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh-huh. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? I think, uh, I wish I could take credit for it. Uh, I used it earlier. Uh, it's Emerson's quote, we become what we think about all day long. I think that that's super, super important. If people understood the relationship, uh, I wish we had time to go into the neurology behind how a thought translates chemically to emotions, which drive some reaction, which drive a result. But let it suffice to say that your thought, everything you think drives how you feel and what you do and what you get. Even if what you think is wrong, even if the things you're thinking are wrong, they can still drive very real emotions real reactions, and real results. We call it the self-fulfilling prophecy. So my single most important piece of advice I give to anybody, whether it's speaking at FedEx to their top 200 performers or speaking at the Nebraska State Penitentiary to a group of lifers, I tell them the same thing. You become what you think about all day long. I wish that were my quote. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I love to use it. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch. Where would you point them? Uh, I would point them to social media. They can find me easily there at Weldon Long. Uh, also on my website, weldonlong.com, W-E-L-D-O-N-L-O-N-G, weldonlong.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would encourage everyone to get crystal clear on what you really want. We don't do it enough. We don't take enough time. What do I really want? What do I really want with my family? What do I really want with my job and my income, my financial? Don't just go along and just assume it's all going to work out. Get very specific. One of my favorite books is Think and Grow Rich, uh, Napoleon Hill, written in 1937. And the very first success habit that Napoleon Hill taught was that you have to have a definite purpose. 
That's specifics, right? That's focus. Figure out exactly what you want and then start going for it. Awesome. Well, this has been a ton of fun. I wish you lots of luck and keep doing the inspiring that you're doing. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed chatting with you. I really enjoyed Weldon's perspective on the cigarettes with regard to visualizing 2,000 of them all at once and torching them and experiencing the sickness or death that might emerge from that. And it's very dramatic and visceral and powerful, but also real with regard to the impact of a small thing done regularly over time. And I think that's cool to imagine both for good things and bad things with regard to that extra, I don't know, few hundred calories from cheesecake, you know, dessert after dessert, or the extra impact associated with doing some meditation or exercise or whatever. Just like imagine, hey, what does that look like multiplied together over all the times I do that? Call it three times a week, you know, 50 weeks a year, 150 times. Like just imagine the magnitude of that and then what that can do for you. So I thought that was pretty cool and powerful means if you're maybe struggling with some motivation to hunker down and do something or hunker down and not do something to just imagine the impact of it when it gets aggregated out over the year or the lifetime and just how huge that is. So cool stuff from Weldon. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F373. Hope you push subscribe if you haven't already. Our next guest is Stephen Worley. He's got a podcast. It's about life skills that matter. And he's talking about three key life skills that matter in order to flourish in the shifting, evolving landscape that is work these days and in the years to come. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 